we've talked about a lot of different things in the last two days. There's still, there still are a couple of things that I would like to discuss with you. One of the uh, suttas that there is excerpts, an excerpt of in the handout I gave you, it's on page five. And that's called the Mahasatipatthana Sutra, or the Discourse on the Applications of Mindful Awareness. And, of course, it's very relevant to the topic of this weekend, uh, practice of mindful awareness in daily life. Now, this is just a small part of this sutra. But I, I tried to capture the essence of it in this excerpt. And... Uh, The first passage here is really from the introduction to the sutra. There is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path for the attainment of nibbana, namely the four applications of mindful awareness. So I just want to point out to you that the purpose of the practice of mindfulness that's described here is the attainment of nirvana. It is, it is the ultimate, the highest goal. And he's talking about how to practice mindful awareness in Four, uh, with four different uh, targets or applications or domains. The first one is the body, contemplating the body as an aggregate. And how is the body an aggregate? Well, it's an aggregate of the four elements. It's also an aggregate of all of its different parts, skin, bone, blood, phlegm, and all the other parts, teeth, hair, and so forth. It is also, if you, from your subjective point of view, your body is the source of your experience of the world, all of the sensations that you experience. And, of course, as an aggregate, every aggregate eventually disintegrates into its component parts, so its constituents. And so that's why being mindful of the body, it's also important to be mindful of the nature of the body as an aggregate. Because it is the source of all of our experience and all of our sensation, we elevate our own body and our minds to a special status. And because uh, the bodies of others are objects of desire and aversion. We also tend to regard bodies as something more entirely substantial than they really are. Bodies are aggregates. So, 
a monk lives contemplating the body in its true nature as an aggregate, ardently with conscious awareness and clear comprehension, putting aside the desires and griefs of the world. So that's the first application, is awareness of the body and awareness of the nature of the body and also awareness of what the body means to us subjectively. It is the source of our contact, our knowledge of everything else of the world. Then the second application of mindfulness is to the contemplation of feelings, feelings as they are in themselves. And feelings here refers to uh, feelings in the sense of that which is pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Not referring to emotions, but rather to that quality of every experience. Every sensation you have is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Every thought, every memory, every emotion, every experience of any kind that you have is either pleasant, unpleasant, or uh, neutral. And here, the Buddha is suggesting that you be mindful of that. That when you, when you smell a smell, that this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. When you, your eyes rest on something, they're resting on something that's pleasant or unpleasant or neither. Each sensory experience you have is accompanied by a mental experience. We identify what it is that we are feeling or hearing, smelling, tasting, seeing. And that also has a feeling associated with it. So we have the feelings that are associated directly with the sensations themselves. We also have the feelings that uh, are associated with the mental components that uh, arise from those feelings, from those sensations, I should say, not from those feelings, from those sensations. So you, for example, you hear a sound, and the sound may be pleasant or unpleasant. And then there's the recognition of what that sound is. And when you recognize the source of that sound, it may be something you like or something you dislike. So once again, you have a different kind of feeling that's downstream of the first one. The first is associated with the sensation, and the second is, is associated with your mental recognition. of it. And these come very quickly right after each other. And so if you practice mindfulness, though, you can become aware of these feelings, even though they, different kinds of feelings come very closely following one after another. The third aspect of this practice, the third application of mindful awareness, is to the mental states, the mental states of the mind. And so what he's asking you to look at here is, is this mind uh, is this mind characterized by greed, by aversion, by dullness, by agitation, by clarity? Is, is it a focused mind? Uh, is it a joyful mind? Is it a sad mind? Many of the things that we would call emotions are what 
are being referred to here as mental state. What is the state of your mind? And one of the things I'll point out to you is that these are connected. Okay, so um, you have sensations and then you have a uh, conscious awareness of, of things that comes from identifying the source of those sensations. And those sensations and that uh, the things that we perceive, sensations and perceptions, are accompanied by feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. And this is what determines your mood very often. If you have a number of pleasant experiences, then the mood of your mind may be joyful or happy. If you have unpleasant experiences, it may be in a different state. Also, you have an experience, it's associated with pleasure, it can cause the arising of desire. You want more of the object that you perceive as being the source of that pleasure. Or, conversely, something you have an experience and it's associated with unpleasant feeling. And so your reaction is to have aversion, to want, to want that not to be present or not to continue. So all of the different mental states are very closely connected to the sensations that your body has delivered to the mind and to the feelings that have arisen in your mind as a result of that. They help to create the mental state. Now it also goes the other way. When you're in a joyful mental state, what are the things, what are the experiences that your attention goes to? When you're in a joyful state, you notice the things that are beautiful. You notice the things that are pleasant. You tend to ignore the things that are not so nice. When you're in a sad state of mind, you notice the things that are painful. You notice the things that are ugly. And you have an experience of those things. The feeling that arises from what you direct your attention towards is going to be accordingly pleasant or unpleasant and it will reinforce the state of your mind. So these are working together constantly. You know that. The experiences you have determine the state of your mind. And the state of your mind determines the experiences you have. And it's an ongoing process like this. The fourth application of mindfulness is to the reality that you're experiencing moment by moment. moment. And the important thing is to recognize the role that your mind plays in constructing that reality. That whatever you're experiencing in this moment is not what it appears to be in and of itself from its own side. What you're experiencing in this moment is a product of the activities of your own mind. Your mind has chosen to attend to certain experiences rather than others. Those experiences are pleasant or unpleasant. You have associations from your past, from your past experiences, your past karma, and that determines also the nature of what you perceive and how you perceive it, whether you perceive it as pleasant or unpleasant. So the result is that in every moment we're living in a reality 
that is not self-existently real, but rather is the product of the activity of our own mind. And this is what the Buddha is asking you to practice mindful awareness of. So that's, that's what this practice is about. Now it's an interesting thing. This sutra begins with a description of entering into the meditative state. Uh, in, in the very beginning of it, he says that uh, gone to the forest or the foot of a tree or another quiet place, an abandoned building, that the, uh, uh, that the bhikkhu, the person, will sit down, cross his legs, place his mindfulness before him, and mindfully he breathes in, mindfully he breathes out. And so he describes the process of developing concentration and awareness. And he breathes in a long breath, he knows he breathes in a long breath. When he breathes out a long breath, he knows he breathes out a long breath. When he breathes in a short breath, he knows. When he breathes out a short breath, he knows. So this is, this is the meditation practice. This is where the mind becomes concentrated and focused and highly aware and notices what's happening. And he proceeds to say that experiencing the whole body he breathes, as he breathes in and experiencing the whole body as he breathes out. He trains himself. So he's training this high level of awareness. Calming the bodily formations he breathes in and breathes out. And so this, he presents the meditation process at the beginning of the sutra. And then the rest of the sutra, now many people, anywhere you go, everybody wants to interpret the Satipatthana Sutra. So there are many interpretations of, okay, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? But for me, it was always obvious. First he describes meditation. And then he goes on to describe these other things, which to me are so obviously the mindfulness practice of everything else that is going on in your life. So meditation supports this mindfulness practice of other things. And he even says that. And if if you look at the last little paragraph here, um, and this is actually a description of what's meant by with conscious awareness and clear comprehension. Further monks, a monk in going forwards and in going back is practicing clear comprehension. In looking straight on and looking away from the front is practicing clear comprehension. In bending and in stretching is practicing clear comprehension. In wearing his shoulder cloak, the robes and the bowl is practicing clear comprehension. In regard to what is eaten, drunk, chewed and savored is practicing clear comprehension. In defecating and in urinating is practicing clear comprehension. In walking, in standing, in sitting, in sleeping, in waking, in speaking, and in keeping silence is practicing clear comprehension. So it's clear to me that the intention here is for us to observe our body, the body that acts and the body that experiences the world around us, to observe clearly the feelings of pleasant unpleasant and neither that are associated with the sensations and with the perceptions that arise as a result of that. To be mindful of the mental states that interact with our experiences and perceptions. And most especially, to be mindful of the way 
that this all interacts to create the reality that we're in at any given time. And it is in this way that practicing these applications of mindfulness in your daily life with the foundation, with the support of the meditation practice, that you come to understand the true nature of things, the way things really are. So it's in especially this fourth application of mindfulness that we recognize the, the emptiness of the world and the objects uh, in the way that we normally experience them, and the emptiness of the self that stands behind these mental states that uh, are being experienced, and uh, the way that our experience unfolds in response to mental states and perceptions. Another thing that, was, that is very interesting about his instructions here, uh, just above the paragraph I read are some lines, and these are repeated over and over again throughout this sutra. This whole sutra is fairly long, and it consists of quite a few detailed instructions about how to carry out these applications of mindful awareness. And the interesting thing is that after each of these detailed sets of instructions, he says the same thing. He says, thus he lives contemplating, now in brackets I put these four, but in the, in the sutra itself, where it's repeated over and over again, it would say either body, feelings, uh, mental states, or uh, uh, dharmas, according to the section. But he says over and over again, thus he lives contemplating these four internally, or he lives contemplating the dissolution, or, or, sorry, internally, or he lives contemplating these four externally, or he lives contemplating these four internally and externally. Now, anything that he repeats so often throughout the sutra must have some great significance, right? So, what these poses means to practice this mindful awareness internally and externally, and both internally and externally. going on inside you and what's going on in the external world. Yes, that's right. Yes, and both. And in terms of externally, you're looking at your sensations and your perceptions and your feelings and your mental states. So he's not suggesting that you examine the mental states of rocks and chairs, right? But of the people around you. And what's really powerful about this is that in, and this is true of absolutely all of the mindfulness practice that we've talked about, is that as you see and understand yourself and these things in yourself, then you can see the same things in other people. Right? So, now that's wonderful because that totally changes the way that you tend to see other people. When you see yourself in someone else, you understand them in a different way. And you naturally have much more compassion for them. You have much more understanding. You see them acting in a particular way and you say, ah, I've done that. I know what that feels like. I know what motivates one to act that way. 
So you see yourself in other people, and this opens you up, and opens you up to compassion and understanding. But there's another interesting thing that happens too. If you practice mindful awareness, not only of yourself, but of other people, you can see things in other people that you can't see in yourself. So it works the other way too. If you practice in this way, seeing yourself in somebody else, and then you see, aha, you see things about it, and you realize, I'm like that too. I didn't see that in myself. You know, I disguised that in myself. It was obscure. But now you can see it in other people. And so this is the advantage of practicing this mindful awareness internally and externally, and both internally and externally. On the one hand, it develops much greater understanding and compassion, makes us less prone to uh, unskillful mental states. On the other hand, it allows us to see and understand much more clearly than we would if we only examined ourselves. No. After all, would you ever know you had a nose, two eyes, and a mouth if you could never see another face? <laughs> At least you wouldn't know what yours looked like. So Then he goes on to say he lives contemplating the origination of these four. He lives contemplating the dissolution of these four. He lives contemplating the origination and dissolution of these four. So in examining these, what we also see, we become aware of the fact that everything is constantly changing. Nothing is permanent. Things arise and things pass away. And as we continue to observe this in these ways, we come to realize that everything is process. Everything is a kind of flow. That, and especially this, the reality that we create in our mind appears so stable to us and the reality of the person that we think we are also appears so stable to us. But if we do this practice, we see that everything is continuously changing. Everything is in a state of flow. And when we look inside ourselves, we see the same thing, that there is no permanent abiding self. There is this process. The five aggregates are continually undergoing flux and change, and in no two moments are they ever the same. And we see that, aha, this that I am is not a thing, not a permanent enduring substance, but rather an ongoing flowing process. The existence of these four is established in his conscious awareness to the extent that is necessary to further increase his knowledge and understanding. He lives independent and does not cling to the things of the world. What does that say to you? The existence of these four is established in his consciousness awareness to the extent that is necessary to further increase his knowledge and understanding. Because what, what is it, I mean, you've noticed all of these things, you've noticed your body and your feelings and your mental states before. What is different about this practice 
from how you normally experience it that allows wisdom to arise. Yes? Well, he's saying that he, um, um, that their existence is only there to the extent that it helps him. Yeah. And he doesn't connect to them like they're real. Exactly, yeah. You don't identify with them. You don't, you don't make them real. You don't grasp onto them. You, and it's it's very similar to what we do in meditation. Thoughts come in meditation, and we see, oh, that's a thought. But we don't get caught in the content of it. If we go into the content of the thought, well, we're lost. We're gone. And it's the same thing. In practicing mindful awareness, you have to learn not to get caught. To see these things to the extent that they contribute to your knowledge and understanding of the way they really are but without getting lost in the delusion. Because your feelings of pleasure and pain, can you can become caught in them. And once you're caught in them, then you become caught in the mental states of desire or aversion or joy or sadness, grief, and so on, that come out of them. And so uh, this, is, this is about staying mindful, not not losing yourself in the experiences that you have. So I think this is a one of the most powerful teachings that we have that have come down to us, and one of the most useful ones. And I really like the way it points out the relationship between meditation and these practices that you do when walking, sitting, standing, eating, dressing, undressing, going to the bathroom, everything else. Any thoughts on this? Yes? Uh, <clears throat> I want to interpret uh, uh, what you just mentioned as a, in, in a mathematical way. In a mathematical way, okay. Yeah. It's like an iterator. It's a, a function that the input, at each input or the function, you got outputs. Yeah. But if, but if you turn the output again as an input, it's an uh, iterator. Now, it's when it uh, run this function, and many times it's for uh, iteration. Yes. So our sensory image uh, can be regarded as an input of function, yes. our me- mental state. Yeah. And for each input of sensory information, uh, we got an output, yeah. so we can make it uh, a happy experience according to our uh, standard of mental knowledge, something, mm-hmm. and you can make it a sad experience according to your uh, limits of your knowledge or, or your, I can say, your wisdom. Something. Yes. Right. So the output is uh, is immediately. Turn around as uh, another sensor. Becomes another input. Yeah, input. So yeah. we experience your output again and turn it <laughs> around okay. again. So if you have, a, if you have a, an appropriate, uh, appropriate mental state, you, you get every input as a negative 
understand how it works, then it becomes possible to change it. And, uh, so I, I don't know, did you follow what, what he was saying? Yeah, it's like an equation. Now, most of the time what we do, you know, if, if we're like a mathematical function, you know, and you have inputs and it produces outputs, most of the time we go around trying to change the inputs so we'll get a different output. But what this is all suggesting is that we change the mathematical function so that, that we're not dependent upon the, the inputs for getting a particular kind of result. We can do both. You know, of course we can change the circumstances we're in. We can spend time in the company of good people. And, uh, and if, we, if we live in the right way, we'll have a lot of good inputs. If you are a virtuous person, if you are uh, honest, you don't engage in divisive speech or, or harmful speech, or gossip, if you don't take things, if you're generous, you know, if you're loving, if you're patient, if you don't get angry, then you're going to get lots of good input. So you can change the input in that way. But there's also that other part that no matter, you, you can't ultimately control all of your input. You're going to get some input, you know, put it this way, no matter how much good karma you make for yourself, sooner or later you're going to harvest some bad karma. So this is where being able to change what happens with that comes into it. Change the function. So even though you get some not so good input, you don't have to be stuck with bad output. Um, and this concept is very, actually it's very new. It's uh, actually uh, developed uh, as, as late as uh, 1975. It's, a, it's about the theory of uh, fractal in chaos, mm -hmm. the, the butterfly effect. Yeah. Use this iteration, you can see a very, very rich behavior of the, the function. Recently, I, I do a project to, to show that uh, the concept of fractal, from fractal to chaotic behavior to, to chaos. A simple function, a quadratic function, everybody knows in, in this uh, uh, middle school. A simple function, you can get a very extremely rich behavior from sta stability, 
uh, to zero is definitely to a certain value, and then you got um, bifurcation. The output constantly um, focus on two period, and then for the first shot peak, and then it changes to period four and period five, uh, now period eight, and sometimes get period period five and period three. Yeah. And a very rich behavior. It's, it's amazing, really. Mm -hmm. I know. <laughs> and maybe everything is still deterministic. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the function is deterministic, but the output is uh, it's chaotic. Uh, you can say. Yeah. But it's deterministic chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> Well, see, Sean is the perfect one for that because he was he was doing Buddhist studies at University of West, and now he's studying mathematics. <laughs> so you're going to do the the mathematics of Buddhism. Yeah. And you know that uh, the fractal feature is it reminds me uh, very much of the boundary of uh, body and from the, uh, from the outside and the inside. The boundary is further. Uh, you cannot tell. Uh, it reminds me very much of the uh, concept of boundary of body and outside. You can, in meditation, you cannot tell what this uh, sense uh, of touch happen. Where's the boundary of sense, sensory uh, information? It's really hard to tell. And it, it made me very. Uh, it's very similar to that picture of fractal. If you go into internet, you can to do some uh, picture of fractal. The, the boundary is very complicated, very beautiful. And if you go into um, infinitely detail, there's always uh, you cannot tell what's inside and outside. Very, very difficult. But if you reach up to a Largest uh, distance. Yeah, there is outside and inside. Okay. Anyone else have any comments? Yes, there. Uh, um, very interesting to hear uh, what Xiang say the input output. And I have a question just about that. I see that when he mentioned that input output and output become input, and I see the daily life a lot finds the situation from that right is this way. Input and we add output and get into emotion and be input again and become subsara, you know, mm -hmm. just, yes. just that way. And I am wondering that for for uh, for Dharma practice be more enlightened is the input and output and no circle back to input, is that that the way or or just pretty much just see the process and let go and, and that. Or, was, or we deliberately turn out the output be quote unquote positive or wholesome and come back. We, we do deliberately do that or we just input and output and go. You're talking about what? You're talking about how, how the, Buddha? The, the Dharma practice. The Dharma practice? Because I, I see that if output greatly input and, and all the things, just just exactly samsara, you know, a circle yes. and circle, circle. But but we say the Dharma practice mm -hmm. is 
stop this kind of circle, right. right? So, so is that mean is we input in and we output <coughs> don't allow the output and come back to the input, or, or we turn off? The, I don't know. I just, I just curious. Was the Dharma practiceful? Well, there's <coughs> there's two two levels to this Dharma practice, and one the important one that we have to spend a lot of time in in the beginning is what you would might it's it's where we are we're still in the realm of samsara and the inputs and outputs yeah they're like samsara the wheel going on and on so what do we do if we practice uh, virtue if we practice generosity virtue patience uh, right effort we meditate uh, if we do all of these things, we are we are creating good karma, and we are neutralizing our bad karma. But we're still in the realm of karma. We're still in the realm of inputs and outputs. If you live and practice in this way, you'll have a much better life. You'll have much happier circumstances. Uh, if you practice in this way. You can become uh, less vulnerable to to shattering disappointments and pain and things like this because you have the dharma to fall back on. But you're not enlightened. But what we're talking about, the second level of the dharma practice, is you actually stepped right out of this entire process. But what you have to do first, you have to practice in such a way that you prepare yourself so that you can make this transcendent leap. You have to get yourself ready. Um, and you don't know when it's going to happen, so you just keep on making yourself more and more ready until it does. You know, enlightenment's an accident, so you keep making yourself more and more accident. <laughs> so you keep on getting yourself ready. You keep on practicing mindfulness, you keep on practicing meditation. and your life will get better and better, and your karma will get better and better. But the truth is that, yeah, you're still you're still on the wheel. You haven't gotten off of the wheel yet. The other important thing that's happening on this is you're not just you're not just making good karma, and you're not just having a better life because you've become a better person. The other really important thing that's coming out of this mindfulness practice is you're coming to understand the way things really are. And it's that understanding, it's from that understanding that you're going to make the step. That's what's so important. Uh, in the process of doing this, in the process of uh, following this uh, four applications of mindfulness, you come to see clearer, more and more clearly all the time how the world you live in is a creation of your own mind. And how the self that you think you are is just another creation of your own mind. And that neither has any existence outside of your mind. And that's really important. Um, think about this. We all know the story about, you know, the, there's a rope on the ground, but you see it and you think it's a snake, right? And we can relate to that. You can imagine that. Imagine that right now that you're going for a walk over here and you look down and you see a snake on the ground in front of you. 
Because that's how you experience the illusion. You see a snake. At what point are you capable of knowing that it's not a snake? Now, some things could happen. You could think to yourself, there's not supposed to be any snakes around here. Or you could think to yourself, uh, I know all about snakes, and I've never, I've never read or heard about a snake that is that color. Or you could think to yourself, uh, snakes don't lay on the ground like that. They coil up or they... All that is thinking. But you're still believing, you know, it's a snake. But some part of your mind goes, well, there's something wrong there. That doesn't really totally fit the description of a snake. You don't, you don't know really that it's not a snake until you see it as something else. When you see it as a rope, now it's not a snake anymore. You have to do the same thing. You have to get to that place of understanding uh, Basically, understanding the, char- the the three characteristics that there are no such thing as things. There is only this process that takes place, and that uh, it is empty of any nature of being the way we, the way it appears to us to be. And you recognize that to cling to that which is not real, to that which is empty, can only make you suffer. And then you realize that the self that you believe you are is also an illusion. And that going through your life, acting in a way to serve the interests of this illusory self is only going to lead to suffering and dissatisfaction. So it's when you really see that. This is, this is insight. This is what we're after in this process, is to gain insight. And the insight is that things, we see things as one way, but they're not that way. And all the problems that we experience are because we act as though they are something that they're not. And this is the insight. Well, this is good, but even with insight, you're still on the wheel. But it makes it possible. What you, have to, what you have to do is to see things as they really are. But the first step is to, is to see that it is an illusion. And, yeah, and so everything that we do helps, us, helps to bring us to this place of understanding. But then the final step is this leap that goes completely beyond. Now, when you, when, you're, when you experience that transition, what changes? And this is what you're asking. What happens? Somebody gets enlightened and uh, they still go around in the world doing things and producing results, right? But the difference is that if a person is truly enlightened, there is no self. All there is is the five aggregates. And all there is is cause and effect. And so for you and I, we look and we see a Buddha walking through the world, talking, teaching, and doing things. 
what we see is those aggregates. And part of what happened as he became a Buddha is he worked on his mathemat- on mathematical function so that no matter what kind of inputs, the output is something that's beneficial. And those five aggregates only exist for the benefit of those beings that are still trapped in the illusion, in the sea, in that illusion. But the Buddha is no longer a self and is no longer experiencing things as a separate entity. The Buddha has gone to suchness, to isness, to what is. To The Buddha has gone to the reality that lies beyond the illusion. And so while we're still in the illusion, we'll still see the process of cause and effect happening in, in the same way. And the way we see it is that individuals are affected by things and individuals do things. But this is not the perspective of suchness. This is not the perspective of ultimate reality. So, whereas the body and speech of the Buddha still function in the marketplace, the mind of the Buddha dwells in nirvana. But you're absolutely right, and this is an important point, that no matter how good you make things, no matter how much you purify your karma, if you're still trapped in a delusion, it's only a matter of time before you make more bad karma, or good karma, or whatever. As long as you're in the delusion, you're still, you're st- you're still caught in karma. And we can't, you know, if we could magically be bumped out of it, then that would be good. We'd step right outside of it. But instead, what we have to do is to work with the illusion that we're caught in, to work with the karma. So let's work with the karma. Let's make it work for us. Let's purify our karma. And let's bring ourselves to the point where we can go beyond the delusion to make that final step and and transcend it. Other comments? That is important to understand because, of course, especially if you start being successful in this practice, you might come to think that making good karma is really, making good karma and getting rid of all your bad karma is, that's all there is to it. And, you know, you're, you're kind of justified in thinking that. It's like, wow, everything's going so well now, you know. But the trouble is that everything that is due to causes and conditions is subject to change. Everything that's due to causes and conditions will pass away. So no matter what positive, beneficial state that you create for yourself, it's a state dependent upon causes and conditions. And when those causes and conditions are exhausted, that state will pass away. And in the meantime, everything you're doing is contributing new causes and conditions and there is always the possibility that some of those are going to lead to uh, an undesirable outcome. So, 
until the mathematical function is absolutely, totally perfect, which I don't know if it ever can be, but as long as it is, sooner or later you're going to get an output that isn't what you want. <laughs> kind of be disappointing. Yes, Mark. Um, the difference between Buddha and other very wise sages is that uh, he is completely liberated uh, person, and um, and in the process of purifying his mind, like um, you know, he, he he gets into deeper and deeper states of concentration, and he still sees that you know this is still con- you know conditional and subject to to aging and death. Yes, exactly. And uh, but then you know how does how does one know for certain that uh, the goal has been reached? It's like you know somebody who's used to eating very very salty mm-hmm. food, all of a sudden you know you know um, uh, is exposed to food that are a lot less salty and is so low. You know the saltiness level is low to the point that's undetectable by the person who's used to very salty food. It takes probably a long time of eating that food before they realize, oh, there's still salt in this food. And uh, so maybe it takes a lot of time to finally realize whether if a person has achieved a goal or the person would just simply know. Well, that is a problem. How do you know when you've achieved the goal? Because there are a lot of wonderful attainments along the way. And it is the nature of the process that people do mistake those for the goal. You know, and that happens over and over again. It is one of the important roles of a teacher who has already uh, traveled the path, because you know uh, they can they can tell you where you are. They can, uh, more importantly, they can tell you where you aren't. You're not there yet. Isn't it more important for us to 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 know that we're there instead of having other people tell us that we're there? No, it's yes. It's more important for you to know you're there. What's important for other people is if they can tell you when you're not there yet, so that you don't quit practicing and making the effort. That's that's exactly the thing. Um, you know, one of the things that happens in meditation is that. You, you will come to a place where you experience great joy, tranquility, equanimity, uh, and it will stay with you when you're not meditating. So you go out in the world and, you know, uh, you feel like you've transcended everything. Things don't bother you, you don't get upset, you're happy, you love everybody, you're not attached to things. And this is very similar to what it's like to be awakened, but you're not awakened. It's only the result of your meditation practice. Because if you don't continue to meditate, then it will go back to being the way it was before. The joy will fade, the tranquility will fade, the equanimity will fade, you'll start to react to things again, things will start to bother you again, and so forth. So, this is a good example of something that you know, while this is this is the state of samatha. So somebody who practices and they achieve samatha might become convinced, and they do become convinced. It happens a lot. They become convinced. Ah, 
I'm enlightened now. This is it. I'm perfectly happy. You know, I understand everything. Nothing bothers me. I love everyone. What more could there be? What more could there be? And they, they become convinced of it. What then happens, of course, is that um, they might set themselves up in the position of a, of a teacher. And they gather around a whole bunch of students around them who, you know, uh, admire and adore them. And their practice begins to slacken off. And then the cracks begin to, to show. They lose that state. But now they have an ego investment. Yeah, they can't say, oh, well, I guess I have to go back and practice some more. Because they've already sold themselves to all these people. You know, I'm the enlightened master. So, you know, how do you say, well, I, I realize that that's not really it. I've got to go back and practice some more. Now they're in a trap. They need to convince themselves they're very close. And they're still, they're, they're kind of like bodhisattvas. What's going to be enlightened? Yeah, they're bodhisattvas stuck along the way. <laughs> and they're stuck in a trap of their own making. But, you know, if that person had a good teacher, the teacher would have said, this is rapture that you're experiencing, and uh, it's dependent upon your meditation practice, and it won't last. Something's going to come along in your life that's going to blow it up. And when that happens, it's going to all be gone. Or you're going to get sick, and you can't meditate anymore, and it's going to all go away. You know? Or you're going to get, uh, you can enjoy cruising on this wonderful place, for a certain period of time, and then you're going to get old and sick and you're going to die, and it's going to all fall apart. You know, so. so, it's not, what's important is that you don't delude yourself, and this is where somebody else comes in. It's not important whether somebody else says, ah, Michael, you're awakened now. I mean, if somebody says that, says, you don't need to practice anymore, Michael, you're right. That doesn't do you any good at all. It doesn't mean any, any, anything because I, I still, if I can still sense I'm suffering, it's, it yeah. doesn't matter what other people say. I know I have any life. Yeah, that's right. But the thing is that you can become convinced you've become enlightened when you haven't. And there's the problem. And there's where a teacher can say, well, Michael, you might not be, so I want you to keep this in mind, and I want you to notice these things and keep practicing and do this and do that. And then, you know, if the salt is still in there after a little while, it won't take too long, because now, now you haven't blinded yourself by saying, ah, this is it. So now you'll be able to taste, oh yeah, there's still some salt in there. I haven't, haven't arrived yet the total salt-free diet. <laughs> I was having a discussion with Chris earlier. He had a question in regarding to, he said that, uh, uh, what is the, the word that he used? Uh, life is, is suffering. And then, I, and then he disagreed with that because he feels that a lot of times when he's in deep, deep meditation, he feels nothing but joy. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, to me, that just sounds like somebody who is still ignorant of the subtle, um, subtle uh, uh, sufferings that is still there because... You know, when we're in a meditative state, it's conditioned. That's and right. anything that's conditioned is subject to aging and death. Exactly. And and so so you know, even if uh, it, even if say for example, compared to the normal salty diet that I have, you know, the diet you know presented at that time is much lower in sodium. Mm -hmm. It's still a food you know that that has you know some substance of sodium in. Mm -hmm. Still still fundamentally you know the same. It, it hasn't I haven't reached the point that I. 
you know, that had, you know, that, that, that the food is entirely salt-free. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, you know, and so meditation, if you're successful in meditation, you will reach places that tempt you to think that, well, this is as good as it can get, or this is good enough. And, uh, unless somebody tells you differently, that's, that's exactly what you're going to think. But meditation that produces that is no different than, you know, I mean, maybe the first person that ever smoked opium saw the same thing, ah, this is it. I've got the solution. Now, all I have to do is keep smoking opium the rest of my life and there'll never be any pain, only happiness. But the first time you run out of opium, then... <laughs> so how, how does the Buddha know for sure that he's enlightened? How does the... Well, okay. Oh, did he? He knew for well, sure. He, he knew for sure. Uh, the thing is, at, when you... <laughs> There's so many people before him said that they're enlightened, too. <laughs> well, and, um, and I do believe a lot of those people were. I, you know, I... The Buddha wasn't the first person to achieve enlightenment. Uh, But you have people that achieve enlightenment and know it, and you have people that haven't achieved enlightenment and don't know that they haven't. But how does does the Buddha know? Well, let's put it in, in another problem is the the realization of the way things really are, the experience we have of the emptiness of self and the emptiness of our mental projections. And the question can be asked, how do you know that that's real? How do you know that that's not just another mental projection? Because you've had a lot of really good mental projections along the way. So how do you know that's that's not another experience generated by your mind? And there's no simple answer to this question, but <coughs> when you have that experience, it changes the way your mind works. And that's what's important about it. Not the experience that you had, and not even whether the experience you had was genuine or not. Did I have a genuine Magapala experience or not? Ultimately, that's not what's important. What's important is, did your mind change the way it works in such a way that you are now a stream enterer? And if we look at what the sutras say about that, nowhere in the sutras do you find the Buddha talking about enlightenment experiences, magapala, darsana, marga, you know, these, this, these experiences. You have the Buddha talking about the person who is a stream enterer and the qualities they have. The, uh, uh, the defilements that they have overcome. That's what you find described. So, uh, this is, so in a way, this avoids the question of how do you know whether the enlightenment experience you had was real or not? It's real if you have become a person who manifests the characteristics of an enlightened being afterwards. That's as far as stream entry is concerned. The experience you have, though, it is an experience of nirvana. And the experience you have, you have no doubt about the fact that it is completely and totally outside 
the realm of any other ordinary experience. Even though you may have had a mistaken idea about other experiences in the past, this time you know it's different. But you can't explain to somebody else how you know it's different. But that is one of the qualities of it. And a very sophisticated, clear-thinking person could present you with a very strong argument that, well, you can't really know that for sure. Because every experience you have goes through the filter of your mind. And so this is just one more experience. So how can you say that this is a direct experience of reality when, you know, well, you can't counter that argument, but the experience itself leaves you convinced. But that's not what's important. What's important is the change that it produces in in you. But the other thing is that as you progress on the path, become a stream enterer, and stream enterers do often slack off. It's like, wow, this is pretty good, you know. Great. I, I, what I have attained, you know, and, and they don't necessarily sustain their practice. They will go into a period of, uh, of negligence. But, you know, what will happen is eventually they'll realize that this too, this is unsatisfactory. I'm still plagued by desire and aversion. I still... I experience suffering. I, you know, it may be nothing like the suffering I used to have, but I still experience suffering. I still slip into uh, negative mental states that bring about unskillful actions and the consequences of it. So at some point you know there's further to go. Then you reach the stage of the, uh, of the once-returner or the non-returner, where you really, you've either really diminished all craving or you've obliterated all sensory craving. And from that point, you absolutely, you know with, not only do you know with total certainty that what you, that the nirvana that you have experienced is genuine, but you also know with equal certainty that you have not yet reached the end of the goal. And I can't tell you what happens after that. It seems like it's not easy to determine whether a person is a perspiration or not because a lot of people who are not perspirationers they would uh, display similar characteristics. So yes. it seems like the important thing is to reach the ultimate goal, to reach full it's, enlightenment. It doesn't exactly. matter if, we're, if, 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 if you know, we have reached you know, perspiration or not. You know, it's like you know, whether it's, it's kind of fruitless to debate and think about it. You just you know, we should just aim for the highest possible goal. That's exactly right. It does not matter because until you have attained Buddhahood, you haven't completed the path. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter where you are on... Well, in, in, there are certain respects in which it does matter. But I mean, in terms of that, until you've achieved the final goal, then you have nothing to do but to keep working towards the final goal. And... If you think you're uh, if you think you're a stream entrant and you're not, it doesn't matter that much as long as you keep practicing. It only matters if you think you're a stream entrant and you start slacking up. Yeah, it could be actually bad if so, if somebody realizes you're a stream entrant, they'll probably start to slack up. <laughs> well, there's a, 
there is a temporary period where people, people some people, when they achieve stream entry, it just fires them up and they, you know, they practice the Dharma a hundred times more diligently than ever before. But there's others that say, well, okay, time to take a little vacation and enjoy all this, uh, <laughs> the, the fruits of my hard work. But the thing is that if they are, whether they're a stream enterer or not, in either case, they have not transcended suffering. And so, sooner or later, they're going to come to the point where they say, it's time to get back into the practice again. So, yeah. yes. um, the other part of Chris's question is that he, I think he needs some clarification. Um, because when it said, life is dukkha, um, it, it could be perceived as all of life is dukkha, like 100% of it is dukkha. Mm-hmm. But he's, he wants you to know that, could it be just, is it mostly dukkha? Like, is it 95% dukkha, but 5% pleasure? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you practice, so then the percentage of the joy gets increased, so then maybe you have 40% happiness and 60% dukkha, and then you progress until you gain enlightenment, then it's 100% happiness and zero dukkha. When you're enlightened, it's zero dukkha. Yes, when you're when you're enlightened, it is zero dukkha. But before that, uh, it all depends on how you measure it. So if you take your own life, you have a pretty good life. Let's take a piece of your life. Let's take the last month, and you say, "Well, sometimes I was happy, and sometimes I was unhappy, and sometimes I'm not so sure." whether I was happy or unhappy. And, of course, times when I was really, really happy and times when I was really, really unhappy. And times when I was sort of happy and times I was sort of unhappy. So, how do you turn that into 75%, 25 65%, 35%, things like that? It's a little bit difficult. The other thing is you look at it in smaller chunks. You say, okay, well, let's look at this time Last Sunday, when you know, from 6:37 to 8:19 p.m., I thought I was really, really happy. And you examine that closely, and you find that uh, there was—it wasn't all dukkha-free. There were there were the moments where you clung to the happiness you had in such a way that it, uh, you you had the fear of losing it. it you know, you have the thought, well, this isn't going to last. So even within our happiness is some disguised dukkha. And ultimately, even if you have ten minutes of pure bliss, it is, the entire ten minutes is dukkha in the sense that it's not going to last. So it depends on how we look at it. Now, what a lot of people will do is they'll look at their life and they'll say, well, you know, yeah, there's a lot of pain and suffering in life, but mostly my life is pretty good. So, like, that's good enough for me. I'm happy with that. And you'll find people out there that are like that. And they're pretty happy, easygoing people because they're looking at that at life that way. Remember, dukkha means unsatisfactory. And it's if you look closely enough, 
then you find that their life is still characterized by dissatisfactoriness. They, it's not really satisfactory when their child dies, or their spouse dies, or their parents die, things like that. There is all kinds of suffering along the way. When they get that diagnosis of cancer or whatever, you know, there's a lot of dissatisfactoriness in that. When they're told, well, you have a choice, you can do all this chemotherapy, it's going to make you really sick for three months, but then you might live for a year longer than you would otherwise. Uh, three months of misery, chemotherapy, versus living a year longer. There's a lot of dissatisfactoriness in that choice. There's a lot of dissatisfactoriness in that experience. So, depending on how you look at it, you can look at life in one way and say, no, it's not all dukkha. It's got its ups and its downs. So it's got some dukkha and it's got some sukkha. And that's the way we usually look at it. Then, but you can look at life a little more closely and a little more realistically. And you realize that there is no place on the wheel of samsara that is truly comfortable, that is truly happy, is truly free from dukkha. Okay? Uh, and whether, how, whether or not you practice the Dharma and how diligently you practice the Dharma is going to be partly determined by how aware you are of that and how willing you are to accept it. Some people are saying, say, well, I'm willing to accept that amount of dukkha. And other people say that they're not. 